My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I've spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the DTD Podcast. Tonight, a 20-year veteran, retired Sergeant First Class with the U.S. Army. He spent time in the 82nd Airborne, 5th Ranger Training Battalion, 1st Special Forces, and even the White House Communications Team. After his career serving his country, Ryan started making some of the baddest knives on the planet. In the studio with me, Ryan Overland. What's up, brother? Hey, man, how are you? I'm good. I'm so glad you're on here, man. Brian got us together, and and I didn't yeah, even wow. know that we were at the same wedding together and had no idea when uh, Brian had his. And he said, yeah, that was the best man that kept wiping my forehead for me because it was so hot. <laughs> and And I yeah. will tell you, I would think at a wedding in October, it wouldn't be as hot as it was in the woods, but that was miserable out there. And I was just sitting in the crowd. Oh, dude. Yeah. And like coming from Washington state, like my wife and I were dying. Like I had a steady stream of sweat pouring. So I was just like, oh, it's just normal Texas. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I can't complain though, because afterwards, uh, they had quite the, uh, bar and, um, food and all that kind of stuff. So I drank a lot that night. Um, <laughs> uh, but you know, it was a lot of fun, but I didn't know that we were there together. And then, uh, Brian had showed me and I started looking on Instagram and, and just like fell in love with your knives, man. They're so awesome. And then he had talked about you and said what you'd done in the military. So I said, let's get him on the show and uh, talk about these knives where people can find them. And then just kind of have a talk about his military career and what he's been doing since. So I want to start off by asking you early life. Did you come from a military family? Did you, um, you know, was there kind of that calling for you or was this on a whim as you got older? Um, I, I kind of, I mean like, yes and no military. My granddad was in the Navy um, he shipped out to Korea the day that like the armistice was signed. So they transferred him, like they sent his ship, diverted it to the Marianas and he started blowing up islands with H bombs. Um, so I've kind of always heard about that. And then my stepdad was a Vietnam vet and, uh, funny enough, he hated the army. He was like, none of my kids will ever join the military. And, uh, he passed away and, you know, he, what he didn't know is listening to all his Vietnam stories and stuff is kind of one of the reasons what really inspired me to join the military. But uh, no, I, even even as a little kid, man, I always knew I was joining the military. Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that about your stepdad because, you know, I think his whole purpose of maybe telling you the stories was to keep you away from the military. Yeah. And, and they did the exact opposite of that. They drove you in that direction. Uh, you have any when you think about it and the stories that he told you, do you have any thoughts in your head of why that maybe happened? Uh, I don't, I have no clue. I, like I said, I, I, even before he came into my life, I knew I was going to the military. I mean, right. My earliest memories were, you know, doing army stuff. Um, yeah, I actually wanted to join the Marine Corps, but, uh, I ended up getting my damn GED and the Marines were like, sorry, kid, you're not good enough for us. So I, went next door and joined the army. 
Yeah, so. now, that was interesting to me when when I started uh, kind of reading through your bio that you sent me, and and you said that you had done it to get some extra points and stuff, but you were eighteen, yeah. so you had taken the test and you passed it, and then you took your ASVAB and everything, and then yep. you you got turned down by the Marines and you went next door to the Army, but you had trouble yeah. right off the bat because you told them you wanted to go uh, eleven Bravo or infantry. And they ended yeah. up turning you into a uh, armor M1 armor crewman. <laughs> yeah. So, like, I was like, I walked into the recruiter and was like, hey, don't feed me any bullshit. I want to be an infantryman. I will take nothing less. Like, let's do this. And the guy was like, hold on. So he sat me down. He goes and gets a station commander. And he comes back. He's like, dude, fucking tell my captain this. Told him the story. And then the captain was like, done so we went to meps like that weekend and it was super busy and uh you know we're in like standing room only at meps and the career counselor comes out and he's like asking these guys like what do they want to do and these dudes were like am i something crazy you know i want to be a space shuttle door gunner guy and he looks at me and he's like what do you want i was like infantry and he's like sweet i'll be right back comes back with a clipboard. He's like, all right, man, sign here, sign here, sign here. Congratulations. So I didn't even know anything. I walked downstairs. My recruiter was down there and I was like, hell yeah, infantry, let's go. And uh, he was like, all right, congrats, man. 11 Bravo. And I'm like, no, I'm infantry, 19 kilo. And he was like, what? He's like, that's not infantry. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, yeah, it is. You're stupid. So he was like, were you in there when he did it? And I'm like, no, he said it was too easy. So he, gave me 19 kilo infantry. And he was like, dude, that's armor. And I was pissed. So the day that I was supposed to ship out to basic, I show up in like board shorts and flip flops. And I'm like, I'm not going to go. And uh, the recruiter's like, oh, we're going to mark you a wall. You'll be a deserter. And I'm like, yeah, I don't care. I'm not going to go. So he like shakes his head and is like, all right, come here. Like, so I had to do like this, like sob story letter about how I always wanted to be in the infantry. And uh, they were like, all right, we'll let them reclass to 11X. Well, we went down to EPS. And at the time, they were offering like, you know, like a college payoff for like a four-year enlistment. And they were at like 140% strength. So the recruiter or the career counselor is going down the list of like, hey, do you want to be water purification specialist? Do you want to do this? Do you want to do this? And then he gets to Camo and... Uh, he was like, oh, here you go. Here's a good one. He's like, you ever watch Forrest Gump? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And he's like, you know the part where they're walking through the jungle? And I'm like, all right, now I'm interested. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, you know the first guy that gets killed in the ambush, the radio guy? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, that could be you. And I was like, sweet, sign me up. So, yeah, that, that's how that all started. So, dumbass kid. So, you, you go in combo. Now, it's funny that you say you showed up in board shorts because – I, I found something from the past and, and I want to ask you about it. Um, you come from kind of a design family because from what I understand, you come from a surfboard design family. Uh, yeah. yeah. And so here's one of the boards right here. And these are highly, oh, wow. yeah. yeah, these are highly sought after on the internet. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I see that uh, you still use the same design in your knives too. Yeah. Yeah. So my uncle was a pro surfer for Dewey Weber back in like the sixties and seventies. Um, he kind of got my dad 
involved with it, but they ran their other shop in Santa Cruz. Um, they're real big on the East Coast. There's a dude in Rhode Island who's uh, his name's Sid Abruzzi. He's like the godfather of surfing in Rhode Island in the Northeast back there. Um, and like he still reps our stuff. He's got all sorts of Overland Star tattoos. And yeah, and even before that, like my grandpa played football at UCLA with like Jackie Robinson. So just kind of a crazy history for the family there. So let me ask you, cause you, you talk about a lot about being outdoors and liking to be in the outdoors. Were you a big surfer growing up and, and outdoors like that? Or was it more hunting, camping, fishing, things like that? Yeah, I did more hunting, camping, fishing. Um, it wasn't until probably fifth or sixth grade that I started going up to my uncle's place on the coast and started surfing. And then I got like real big into surfing, but it's hard to surf year round when, you know, you're from Modesto, California and the ocean's three hours away. So yeah, uh, I, yeah, I, yeah, I can see that. I, you know, when I was stationed over in Hawaii, um, I, I tried to surf a couple times and, um, I could pretty much only longboard over there as, as hard as I tried yeah. to get on a shortboard. I just, I don't know. I didn't have the the balance or the dexterity. I don't know what it was, but I, I couldn't do it. But you see that all the time. And, and I understand though, when you come from that kind of family, um, I would think that they would maybe push in that direction for design or something like that. Um, even if you're not a surfer, but you know, designing stuff like that or designing outdoor uh, gear, which you ended up doing in the end. But did you ever think about that back in the day of, of doing that kind of stuff? Huh? No, not really. I, I've always been pretty good with my hands and making stuff and drawing and whatnot. Um, my uncle was really kind of the driving force for like making surfboards and shaping. Like he's actually pretty, pretty big name in the, the shapers world for surfboards. Um, but yeah, you know, just, it's kind of like a family knack. My, my cousin does crazy stuff with drywall and airbrushes and stuff. I, I think it's just kind of in our, in our family. And then my mom is like super good artist and drawing and painting and creating stuff too. So I've got it on both sides of the family. Well, let's talk about you going into the military now. Um, when you go in, you go commo, uh, but you do kind of pull off a coup when you're doing this uh, signature into the army and you get at least an airborne contract. Yeah. Yeah. So you get put over yeah. in the 82nd. Uh, first, the 505th, correct? Yeah, so I started out in uh, 82nd SIG. They've been deactivated now. And I used to work back in the day. Uh, remember MTOs and all that stuff? Like the infantry battalions weren't authorized SATCOM radios, and the signal battalion wasn't authorized like a uh, RTO MOS. So I was really, I wasn't even combo. I was like pure signal. I worked on big trucks and stuff. But because the 82nd, my first sergeant was like, hey, what's your PT score, kid? So I told him and he grabbed me by the arm and was like, hey, this guy's mine. And uh, like my very first week or second week in, in division, they're like, oh, let's let's try this radio on your back. And okay, have fun. You're going to be attached to the infantry and see you later. And that's just kind of how it started. And I like zero clue, never done a night jump, didn't never been around the infantry was only in the division for like two weeks and I ended up jumping into like purple dragon or something crazy like that. 
Well, you know, when you say that, you you had always wanted to be infantry. You didn't get that. So yeah. you had to be happy only being there like two weeks and getting shifted over and kind of sliced out with an infantry unit. Was it everything yeah. you expected or were you like, oh, shit, maybe I didn't want this? Well, at, at first I was like, oh, shit, this is hard. Like, I, you know, we didn't rock. I didn't have enough time to be a division to, like, build my rucking legs. Having a radio on your back and doing, you know, ruck marches isn't a thing at Fort Gordon. Um, so, like, day one we jump in. It's a mass tack, 0-2 TOT. And there's like 2000 dudes in the air. And I'm like, this is insane. I'd never put on a set of night vision ever. So like I'm wandering around with like old school PBS seven alphas and just totally, you know, you're dumb private. Um, so the second day after everything kind of chilled out, my battalion commander was like, how'd you, what'd you think? And I'm like, oh yeah, that's pretty cool. And then my PL she was like, Hey, I'm going to send you out with the infantry scouts. What do you think? I'm like, what? Like, let's do it. Okay. I, I can, I can dig this. So I got attached to a scout platoon and like automatically they hated my guts. They were like, who is this Pogue and why is he here? Why do we have to have him? So like everybody, the other privates were like, I hate you go away. So we did uh, all of our like rock drills and everything, PCCs, PCIs, and I was just getting hated on the entire time. So I'd never been in a helicopter before. So we did like three or four mock insertions with a UH-60. And then we land, we get out. Like I am lost in the sauce. I am absolutely clueless. And they just sit down, they start taking their helmets off and going to PCs and we're doing seals, you know, stop, look, listen, smell. I didn't know what the hell we were doing, but I just kind of followed suit. <laughs> And it was like me, this lieutenant, and then this PFC. And uh, we walked all over Fort Bragg. I mean, everywhere. We were we walked through a briar patch where like one guy would walk and then fall down. And then the two of us would walk over the top of him, walk as far as we could, fall down. And it, like we leapfrogged each other like this. And I, like, I was dying. And this lieutenant, we get to our like little hide site. And he was like, God, I hate you so much. And I was like, thank, thank you, sir. And he's like, man, every time I look back, he's like, you have this stupid fucking grin on your face. He's like, Cabo guy, you're, you can come out with us anytime you want. He's like, I was trying to make you quit. And he's like, you're, you're cool. So like that just like made my head super big being a private, you know? And uh, I ended up getting like an AAM out in the field for that. And, uh, it was like our entire team got killed except for me and this PFC and then like total private logic. He's like, Hey dude, if we get killed by op four, we get to go home. And I was like, that sounds like a great idea. So like we were just walking around out in the woods trying to find op four. And uh, we ended up like calling our call for fire on these guys. And man, they came out like impact AAM on the spot and then just left us. And we're like, what the fuck just happened? So, you know, like, so I get back to my unit after this, like, two-week-long field problem, and these dudes, like, now my own guys and signal guys, like, hate me even worse because they're like, dude, I've been here for two years and I haven't gotten an award. And I'm like, be better. You know, <laughs> totally not humble at all. So. Well, being Camo and going out with them, um, did it, it helped because I would think with you kind of being a quote unquote expert in 
the radio, never letting them go down, always being prepared to fix them. Cause that, that's a big thing is communications out in the field and they go down yeah. a lot. When you say they hated you, but does it build to where they think like, okay, it's a support guy. He's not infantry, but he knows his job. He knows what he's doing. So it's better to have him here than not have him with us. Yeah. It, well, I kind of earned their respect after that. Like, uh, at, after that field problem, like I started getting requests, like by name requested by units that I supported. So like I was Charlie company, 82nd SIG and we supported third brigade of the O five. So like I would jump with, you know, first, second and third of the O five. Well then scout teams started saying like, Hey, we heard from, you know, one Panther scouts, this guy's okay. He's not a pud. Like we wanted to come out and train with us. So then I started going out with other scout teams. Um, so like once they were like, Hey, that can PT, he knows what he's doing out in the woods. Like he's not a liability to us anymore. Like, okay, he's cool. We want him. Like he's good. Uh, so like that helped. Whereas like most of my guys in the Sigma battalion, they, they were like, why do you want to go be muddy and covered in ticks and dirty and not get a shower and hang out with a bunch of dudes like we have air conditioning like you're not doing your job and i'm like i i didn't join the army to hang out in a tent or a shelter in air conditioning and go in back to the rear every three days for showers like i want to do army stuff so yeah i really really kind of set a name for myself there um which you know kind of helps so like after 9 11 and we found out we were going to afghanistan like like the battalion commander was the one that was like, Hey, you're giving, you're giving specialist Overland a squad and he's being attached to uh third or third battalion of the O five. So, yeah. So you deploy over to Afghanistan, June of 2002. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, that's pretty, pretty close after nine 11 happens. Um, yeah. When you go over there, you're assigned to the infantry again. Uh, yeah. you're now, are you working scouts or anything like that while you're doing that? Or are you just working straight, le uh, straight with infantry units? How are you doing it? Yeah, I was, I was pretty much the battalion commander's RTO. And then towards the middle of our deployment, I was attached to, uh, I want to say like Bravo company or Charlie company. I can't remember. It's been too long. Uh, but then, yeah, I was out with just the line company going out with those guys. So how do you feel about that? So you go over there because I want to talk to you about, cause you're there pretty close to the beginning of it. When you yeah. see how things have evolved in 20 years over there, um, what, what are your thoughts on it from when you go over there all the way through till now, because you're out of the military. I mean, you've got no skin in the game, but what are your thoughts yeah. on being there so soon after what happened and then what you see happen 20 years later? And like, so like when we got there is at the very, very tail end of like Anaconda. Um, like our first real air assault mission was like this five or seven day long air assault mission where we just, we would land, hit a village, walk to the other side of the village, get picked up in a helicopter, fly to another village, sweep and clear through the village, get picked up on the other side, air assault to another one. We did that for like, like it was either five days or seven days. Um, and we finally ended up in the Shaikot Valley at the base of Takagar. You know, they landed half of our forces at the top of Takagar, and then they swept down, and then we were at the base, and then we swept up. 
Um, and that place was pretty damn wild. Like we didn't, we didn't run into any real opposition at all. Like we were there just to make sure that everything was, was done for, uh, like the hundred first and 10th mountain and all the soft and Rangers and everybody that were there, man, they had, they, it looked like they had a hell of a fight. So, but then like, you know, fast forward a couple years and I'm sitting at the white house and like hearing dudes talk about salsa night at like, uh, Bob Salerno, you know, I'm like, what the hell? Like we built the FLS there. We didn't call it Bob Salerno. It was just an ODA safe house in Kaust. And like, you know, in the middle of the night, you just see hear big ass gun battle from opposing A and A forces trying to win stuff. And then, uh, yeah, it's just it like hearing like the Rangers that I work with now talk about some of the bases and stuff that they're at. It's like, I was, I was there like 20 years ago. Like when you guys, I was like, what grade were you in? They're like, Oh, I was in, you know, I was like six. Like, Jesus Christ. Like crazy. <laughs> yeah. So let me ask you going from the infantry and being in Afghanistan. And then, uh, when do you move over to the communications team at the white house? What year are we talking? So, oh man, that would have been January, February of 2003, like prior to the invasion of Iraq. Okay. So right after you pretty much right after you leave Afghanistan, you're assigned over yeah. to the white house communications team. So when you do this, one, you're going from an infantry unit where you got to jump with those guys, go out in the field, all that kind of stuff. You tell the people, you know, you join to do that kind of stuff. You get stationed. Now you get stationed at the white house. I mean, that's yeah. pretty, I mean, that that's a pretty great thing to get. It's a complete opposite of what you've been doing. But my question to you is, is you see a different side now because you saw it from the ground over there. Now you're seeing it almost from, I don't want to say a staging area, but you're seeing definitely a political side of it. So yeah, how do you compare the two to each other? Because they couldn't be more opposite of each other with what you did. Yeah. It, so I was actually, when I was in Afghanistan, I was uh, at one of the, we were providing security for, uh, I think it was like Camp Harriman in Oregonee. And there was an ODA out there from third group. And those guys were hilarious. Cause they're like, dude, this is not the jungle. This place is cold as shit. We hate it here. And then in the middle of their rotation, uh, I think it was 19th or 20th group shows up. And those dudes show up in like Carhartt bibs and Rocky Cornstalkers. You know, like we're out there fighting the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and these dudes show up to deer camp. And uh, this, one of their Bravos walked in and is like, hey, do you guys want to shoot up all this ammo and everything? And he's like, I'm ordering all new shit. So we're like, yeah, so like we are shooting the Carl G we're shooting just, just having a good old time. And that's what I was like, dude, as soon as I get back, I am going to select like that is going to happen. Well, before I had left, I'd done the white house stuff. And, uh, when I got home, I told my mom and my wife, I was like, white house is out. Like, I want to go to a selection. I want to be an SF guy. And both of them were like, you're an idiot. You know, you can always go do the selection thing, but when are you ever going to get a chance to say you work at the white house? It's true though. I'm like, you, you got to agree. Yeah. yeah it, and, and that's, I was like, yeah, you're right. You know, I was like, I've already been to the war. The war's going to be over in a couple weeks, you know, <laughs> like, right. I was like, I'll go do, I'll, I'll go do the white house and I'll spend time with my wife. Cause like my wife and I, we got married and like 
two days later, the battalion commander's like, hey, congratulations, you're going to war. And I'm like, but I, I just got married. And he was like, yeah, war. And I was like, fuck it, let's go, sweet. <laughs> so my, my mom is like, dude, you just got married. You need to spend time with your wife. Your honeymoon was Afghanistan, you know? So I'm like, all right, you're right, you know? So I show up to the White House and I think like my official, my first day in the, in the switchboard, like we've got a shout out line with all these big wigs like NORAD and stuff. And we're listening to the invasion of Iraq unfold. And that's when I was like, I made the wrong decision. Like I should not have come here. Uh, I would, I'd only been home for like a month, I think. And I was having those like post-deployment blues where all I wanted to do was go back and be with my boys and just be back to Afghanistan where life was pretty simple. Um, and then I'm listening to the invasion of Iraq and I'm like, man, my dudes are out right now invading Iraq and going to war again. And I'm sitting here in a suit and tie, like never worn a suit and tie before. And all these guys are looking at me like, like, like really weird. Like, Oh my God, you just deployed. That's insane. Like you've been to war. What do you like? What's it like? And I couldn't understand it, but like nobody had really deployed by then. Well, so let me ask you, when you're there, what exactly are you doing? Because you talk about switchboard, but listening into stuff. So what exactly are you doing there? And, and what does kind of your job entail? Yeah, so <laughs> like, to, like typical recruiting, right? Like you go to the recruiters and they're like, you're going to be doing the X, Y, and Z. And then you find out you don't do X, Y, and Z. You do one, two, and three. So the White House recruiter is like, hey, you're going to be on a travel team. You're going to get to travel with the president. You're going to set up communications for the president and do all this. Um, so I get there and they're like, yeah, you're going to be in a switchboard. So like, you know, those the, the old timey pictures, the little old lady with a headset plugging cables in? <laughs> like, dude, that's me. And uh, except, you know, I'm using a headset and a computer now. And I'm like, like, all right, man, what do we do? And they're like, you're, you're doing it. You're answering the phone and connecting calls. And I'm like... I hate this. Like within like, I think of a week of doing it, I was like, I made a mistake. Like I should not have done this. So yeah, man, I was, I was answering calls for like, like there's three levels of it. There's the, uh, uh, what is it? Just a regular operator where you're just answering kind of your ash, ash and trash calls from like all the lower members. And then uh, once you've been there for a while, you get your, it's called an SAO, a special assistance operator. And then you're answering calls for, you know, president, vice president, senior staff. So. So you do that though. You say you hate that position, but you do it for five and a half years. Yes. Yeah. They would not let me leave. <laughs> so. Do you get to do anything differently than that? I mean, do you get to see, I mean, anything at all? Nothing. Dude, I, I work, it's like a 12 hour shift. And like my wife will, be, will probably would confirm, like I worked every major holiday for like five and a half years. So it's, it's like 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. or 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. And like a lot of, a lot of cool stories, a lot of funny things but man like just day in and day out in a dark little room with a bunch of computer monitors and like five cable news programs running on different tvs so super frustrating 
it is the deep dark parts of politics and the media that you just don't want to know about. So what rank are you setting at right now? So I was at E5 then. Yeah, I was just a little sergeant. And so and with that, now do you have access kind of free mobility to move around the White House or are you stuck to you come in, you sign in, you go right to your little hole and and work yep. or what what is it? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, you're stuck. And so, so. explain the five and a half years to me, because I can't even imagine if you hate it so bad, how, I mean, guys in the military, if they want to get somewhere, they get pretty creative to get away. Were there any kind of creative ideas from you? Like, I can maybe do I'll this to get moved over here or. Well, so back to Afghanistan, when we were in, uh, Salerno, when we were building Salerno out, like we hadn't showered in like a month, month and a half. So, uh, Louisiana national guard comes out after we got the FLS built, you know, we started getting fixed wing in and, uh, this national guard engineer unit was like, Hey, we're going to build you guys a shower tent. So like all of us were like, hell yeah, finally. So they built us a shower tent, but the dude rerouted the gray water back in. So we've got an infantry battalion plus, you know, everybody attached to us. So like MPs, artillery, you name it, right. Are showering out of this one shower, but all of our dirty water is getting rerouted back into the fresh water. So like the entire camp gets dysentery. That's and, always uh, fun. Yeah. You want to lose weight. It's a great way to lose weight. So I get dysentery and then that's like towards the end of our deployment, and then I get home and I'm like, shit's just not right medically, right? So like uh, we PCS up to DC and I go to the doctor and I'm like, hey man, I have to piss like every 15 minutes. Like I'm always thirsty. Uh, I have no energy and they do blood tests and they're like, oh, hey, you have diabetes now. So I have to go through a med board while I'm at the White House and my first med board comes back and they're like, yeah, you're fit for duty, but you're barred from reenlistment. You're barred from deployment and you can't do anything. So I was like, so what you're telling me is serve my time and just get out. And they're like, yep. So like I went from like very motivated youngster to like an absolute shithead, like overnight. Cause I like, I hated my job. I knew I couldn't go back to the 82nd. I couldn't do anything. And uh, yeah, that was it, man. It was like Groundhog's Day for five and a half years. So, but I ended up getting a new commander in to the WACC, the Washington Area Communications Command. And he was a really good dude. He was from a, one of the smooths at Bragg. And it was like, dude, what is your problem? And I told him, I was like, hey, either let me out of the army or give me another med board and let me go do army shit again. So he asked me, he's like, what do you want? And I was like, I want to do army stuff. I joined the army to be in the army. So he got me another med board and they found me fit for duty with no, no issues. I ended up reclassing to uh, 25 Charlie, which is an actual RTO uh, MOS. Man, I was, I was out of there as fast as possible. So I found out like I, when I joined the army, I never knew about Rangers. I didn't know what green berets were. You know, I didn't know any of that stuff. So after I reclassed, I called uh, Ranger Branch and was like, hey, 
can I go to Ranger Regiment? And the dude's like, you have a P3 profile. He's like, we, you know, we, you can't go. He's like, but what I could do is I could send you to RTB. And if you get your tab, then you can, he's like, I'll let you go through RIP. So I was like, hell yeah, let's go. So that's how I ended up going to fifth RTB. So. Well, let me ask you for the five and a half years. And, and, you know, I want to go back to it for a minute. Oh, yeah, you, yeah, yeah. You, you hate your job. You're, you're hating life. You, you, you self-admit, which is crazy that you self-admit though, that you just become kind of a shithead overnight. Yeah. What is it though that keeps you pushing? Cause I kind of want to get the silver lining on it. What <laughs> keeps you going through it? Because you stayed for the rest of your 20 uh, and, yeah. and made great rank and all that kind of stuff. So what was it that, that kind of kept you going or, you know, where, because I, I, I think you would agree a lot of people when they turn that corner and they're like, you know what, uh, fuck this place and all that, it goes downhill from there quickly. And a lot of guys don't recover from that. So what was it that kept you kind of going and still, when you were given the opportunity by your commander to say, what do you want to do? You continued to push to go back out. Yeah, honestly, it, <laughs> this is like, I'm, it, it's kind of, that was a really dark time in my life. So like I had guys and it was just really toxic leadership at the senior NCO level. Um, they hated me and I hated them. And I made sure that they knew that they were, they, they sucked. Like they were, those were some of the worst NCOs I've ever dealt with in my life. Like guys actively, openly admitting to hiding from deployments staying at that at that unit and uh you know like we had this nco that'd come in every single day that never been deployed never gone anywhere spent his almost his entire career at waka and it was like it could be worse boys he could be in the desert and me being me like no regrets i'm like oh yeah how would you know and we just call these guys out and uh you know the few ncos that i did have there that were really good dudes were like just absolutely rock solid NCOs and they ended up trying to leave as soon as they could. So I, I took a lot of my motivation from like the really bad NCOs. And I was like, I am not going to be that guy. I'm not going to let this place be my last like time in the army. Um, and that's, that's really what pushed me is like, I don't want to go down where these pieces of shit think that I'm the piece of shit. So and like, you know, everybody needs their little carrot dangled in front of them. And that was mine. So I, I wish I could tell you that it was like me being super motivated and having good NCOs and stuff. But it, it was, like I said, it was a very dark, negative place. Well, when you get over to RTB, uh, you, you seem to kind of change uh, your, even how you wrote when you were writing to me, telling me, all the different things you're like, Hey, I went to aerosol school, jump master school, promotion board. Like you almost like kick it back into gear again. Like it, it's, it's once again, you turn another corner and you're back to that guy that was at the 82nd. You want to do things. You want to go places. Uh, how do you feel inside when you get back over there and you get to start doing all this? What, what's the thinking going on inside you? Yeah. So like when I got there, I was like real beat down inside, like very little motivation, very depressed. And uh, when I signed in, my first sergeant was a platoon sergeant in the 82nd that I was deployed with. 
And he immediately is like, Overlord, what the fuck? He's like, why are you still in E5? And I kind of like just broke out and told him everything. And he was like, he's like, dude, just try harder. Don't be a piece of shit. And from that, I was like, not going to let this dude down. Um, I mean, like a month later, I think I was in a promotion board for E6, crushed it. And then uh, they sent me to Jumpmaster School, or not Jumpmaster, they sent me to Air Assault School. And like, it was like, I think I was the only guy that graduated from RTB from from 5th Battalion. So like, we had like two RIs that either quit because they're just like, this is bullshit, I don't want to do it, or they just... They just didn't pass. Um, so then I got back and I had these huge blisters on my feet because I wore new boots because I was a big dumbass. Uh, the battalion commander saw me in flip-flops and like an, at that Easter family day, was like, oh my God, what's wrong with your feet? And I told him and he was like, dude, go to the medics and get that scrubbed out. So once that healed, they were like, hey, do you want to go to jump master school? And I was like, hell yeah. Well, it like really pissed a lot of people off because I didn't have a Ranger tab. So they're like, why are you sending a non-tab support Kai to Jumpmaster School? And the CSM was like, because he's the only one that passed Aerosol School. So that kind of like helped my ego up or my confidence level up a little bit. So when you, you talk to this first sergeant and, and he asked you, you know, he was a platoon sergeant, he asked you, what are you still doing as an E5? Do you yeah. break it down fully? And I'm asking because I'm looking for kind of an honesty answer here. Do you tell him like, I'm going to be honest. I was kind of a piece of shit for a while. Do oh, you yeah, tell absolutely. him that? I mean, do you break it all down? Yeah. How do you go at it? Yeah. I, I told him, I was like, yeah, when I, like I broke it down. Like it was a long, like hour and a half long fucking, you know, sob session of me feeling bad about myself. And uh, I was like, you know, I told him everything about Afghanistan and, dysentery and med boards and just the utter depression of working at, at white house comms. And, uh, he was like, well, you're, you're with us now. So we don't fucking tolerate that shit. But it was like instant night and day difference to like the leadership and the NCOs and quality at RTB, you know, night and day difference being, a, being with signal guys and then going to an infantry unit where they're training Ranger. Now, being so, a, being a support guy and and going back into the you know back back with what you wanted to be with, you're always you're always kind of looked at as a support guy, correct? Oh yeah. And so, how do you keep motivation through that? How do you show these guys? Look, I know I'm support. I got to earn my keep around here. What are you doing to show these guys on a day-to-day -day basis? Like I'm here to work for you guys. I'm here to work with you guys. And, and those two don't have to be exclusive of each other, working for someone and working with someone. They don't have to be, you know, exclusive. So how do you show these guys, you know, cause you have to prove yourself time and time again, I'm here to work and I'm here to work for you. Yeah. Uh, doing PT, PT, you know, just, Show them that like, Hey, I'm not some lazy support kid that just wants to hang out in my shop and not do work. So like I was always out doing PT, trying to get, get stronger and better five and a half years of sitting on my ass, 12 hours a day, kind of toll on me. Um, and then started making friends with our eyes and like they would, we'd get a radio call that like one of the trucks was out and before the guys would just be like, Oh, bring it in. When you come in and we'll take a look at it. But I was like, 
fuck that. Give me the keys. I'm going to go drive, you know, the gov out there and I'm going to see what's wrong with these guys' vehicle and try to fix it. So then I'd get out there and the RIs would be like, oh, hey, my radio's not working. We check it out. So I'd be like, yeah, here, I brought you a spare. And they were just like, oh, fuck, this guy, like, he gives a shit. So just by doing stuff like that, like total ulterior motives, not just to like prove my worth, but also I wanted to build rapport with these guys. You know, my end goal was like, Hey, can I go walk, walk a, a patrol with you guys with students? And like, yeah, just stay the fuck out of the way. So I started doing that. And then with the end goal of that was like, I want to go through Ranger school. Cause I wanted to go to Ranger regiment. So you know, it, it finally got to the point where I had enough rapport with the RIs that when I tried going to ranger school, you know, I had to fill out my packet. I filled out my packet and our battalion surgeon was like, absolutely not. Like, no way I'm going to send a diabetic kid on an insulin pump into a school that starves you and works you and exhausts you for 63 days, like not risking my career. So, but I had RIs and stuff that were like, hey man, we'll, we'll take care of him. Like, we'll watch him if he needs stuff. Like, we could carry it. So, but still a, still a no-go. <laughs> so, so let me like, ask you, back, well, like, I totally get it, you know? Well, let me ask you. So that, so you're being told right then you're done. Like you're not going to go do what you wanted to do. And how many years yeah. are we in now? What do you got? Probably 10 in 11 in now? About, I think I was like, uh, yeah, about nine, five years in. Yeah. Yeah. So they're telling you like, you're not going to be able to go do it. And, yeah. and, and you and I have talked about on, on, on this show, you don't hear that a lot. You go do what you want to go do. You know, you, you, yeah. you and I have talked about the guests that I have on and stuff like that. How do you continue going though? Because you just got back into mode and you're like, man, I'm ready to do this. I'll go to any school you yeah. want all these kind of things. But then they tell you that dream is over, man. You, you can forget it. Yeah. So like I, I started like, I really enjoy having troops like youngsters. So like I am because of like the whole army promotion system and points and all that shit. Like I was at, yeah, I was at like nine and a half, 10 years as like an E five, like by all standards, that's you're kind of a turd. So I started, I was still like, yes, I was an E5, but I was a very senior E5. Like I had more time in service than most of my staff sergeants around me. Um, so I took, I started taking our youngsters like under my wing and was like, what do you want to do? You know, they're like, well, I want to go do this. I'm like, all right, let's, let's get it. Let's get you to that. So started trying to get my guys into Ranger school, started pushing them towards Ranger regiment, um, trying to push some of them towards the smooths. And was actually fairly successful in doing that. So, like, I just was like, well, if it's not for me, like, let me help these kids out. And I'll live vicariously through them. So, yeah. And so you you hear about, as, as you're doing this at RTB, the Army is going to stand up two new LURS companies, correct? Yep. Now, yep. this was, you're going to have to explain this one a little bit. So, Lurse was pretty small at the time, um, which yeah. which was shocking to me because whenever I was in, they always had a Lurse unit in the infantry unit and stuff like that. So as they get smaller, but then what they, the way you explained it was that you, 
the Lurs units were small for the conventional units, for the big army. And so they yeah. had to start stepping them up. So they made Charlie 38, uh, and that was at Joint Base Lewis McCord, and then yeah. Bravo 38 at Fort Hood. So yeah. how do you get from RTB over to these new Lurs that the Army's standing up? Yeah, so <laughs> because I was at the White House, they can cut their own orders. So like most of the time you get a set of orders that says Department of the Army. Mine said the White House. So I get to RTB and the Sergeant Major is like, who the fuck are you? Why are you here? I don't even, I'm not even authorized your MOS. And I'm like, here's my orders. I'm like, sorry. So one of my combo guys was doing double duty as uh, like the retention NCO. So he's like, hey, let me, let me look up what I can get out there for you. And I'm like, do not type my name in or put my social into that machine because I'll come down on orders. And he's like, no, no, no. Let me see what I can get you. Let me see what I can get you. And I'm like, absolutely not. Do not touch it. I love this place. This place is great. I'm having fun here. Like, just leave me be. So buddy helping me out types my name in to see what I could get. And like two days later, I'm on the orders to Charlie 38 Lurs at JBLM. So I was like, thanks, Dick. Appreciate it. So yeah, I ended up uh, going through a smooth selection, coming home from that, and then going to long range surveillance. So, was it the same for you? I mean, when you go there, are you? I mean, you're 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 kind of doing the same thing. I'm not going to say the same thing, but is it good enough for you? I guess that's the word to use. Is it good enough for you at the time? Like you still feel like you're contributing something? Yeah. Oh yeah. I loved it there. Lurse was, man, I wish they still had it. Uh, for regular army guys, like there is nothing, there is no better unit than being a long range surveillance. Like, you know, like where else is a non soft guy going to get scuba or halo or like reconnaissance surveillance leaders course or any of that stuff. Like you're just, you're not going to get it unless you're an operator somewhere through either one of the smooths or you go to SF or you make it into Rangers and you're in RRC, like you're not going to get it. So because I was, I was the only jump master in the combo platoon, they immediately assigned me to the halo detachment. Um, yeah, life was good there. I, I had a good time. It was, it was a bunch of degenerates, but you know, we were standing up, uh, we were looking for people. So, all of the guys that are RFS from 275 get put into one company. So you have a company of, you know, RFS 275 guys that all got RFS for alcohol related offenses. And like one month we had more alcohol related offenses than like all of 2ID. So pretty much sets the tone for that unit. Well, and, and it's, it's interesting that you say sets the tone because the, the surprising thing about guys like that is they usually know what they're doing, though. Um, oh, yeah. Even with that. So you have problems on the side, which that is going to happen. But you have guys that, that really know what they're doing. So you're setting up oh, yeah. these new units. And, yes, you have problems that you got to kind of get past, which you talk about the mixed bag of leadership there that you had good and bad. But yeah, if you have a good enough uh, – you know, leadership system set in place that can make that unit really shine. Oh yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, we had we had really good officers. We had you know hit or miss miss NCOs. Um, like I I had done all my stuff to go to Halo School, and then my first sergeant took my spot, and then gets home and retires. Like drops his retirement packet. So I'm like fucking thanks asshole. Uh, but no, it it was good. I had I had really good troops. Um, my NCOs that I was with were were pretty decent dudes. Uh, a lot of them got their shit back together and ended up back in Ranger Regiment, and you know they're they're pretty much like rock stars in in seventy fifth. Uh, some of the dudes went went to the special missions units, uh, like our company commander went went places and did stuff. Uh, one of the other guys that I was with, the captains, he took the or he went to SF and became got his Green Beret. So yeah, just. Just a good unit. It's just the army, the way that leadership is now, they're not gonna send, you know, dudes super far and behind enemy lines, just too much liability. Well, let me ask you about at some point there there pops up another deployment, but you are refused the deployment. <laughs> yeah. I don't I don't know how I didn't get arrested that day, to be honest. So we we go to SRP, uh, we're going to Iraq. We had already called to the base in Iraq that we were staying on as the second largest FOB on Iraq. Uh, we talked to the cash that's there and they said, Hey, we're good. You know, this guy in country, but he's not allowed to leave the wire. So I was like, if I have to be a FOB it, cool. I'm, I'm okay with that. At least I get to deploy and do some time away. Uh, my unit, like they'd purchased some, uh, generators and some refrigerators for my meds like the brigade and battalion commanders at both side memos you know saying hey this guy's this guy's good we accept the risk like he's he's solid this is our plan this is what we have so we go to srp and this civilian doctor is like absolutely not you shouldn't even be in the army and i'm like oh really why so he starts giving me all these reasons why i can't be outside he's like yeah you can't you shouldn't even you can't be allowed out in the heat and i'm like so there's no diabetics in the south and uh he looks at that and he's like well you can't eat mres because you're diabetic and i'm like well actually they're approved under american diabetes association because they have health stuff and he was like he gets pissy with me because i'm shooting down all of his excuses and finally he's just like look you're never gonna fucking deploy i'm gonna try to kick you out of the army and man, I raised my voice. It was like right after the Fort Hood shooting. So yeah, my NCOs grabbed me because I'm about to swing on this guy. And uh, yeah, I, I ended up getting escorted out of the, the JBLM SRP side by MPs. That was fun. So you, you've got another chance here to, to kind of take this and run in another direction. So what do you do? Because you, you're you're not going to get the deployment for sure. So how do yeah. you show the army, hey, I'm I'm still here. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to finish out my time. Yeah. So they, I was super frustrated at this one because uh, they put me as like a rear D platoon sergeant, and I'm dealing with all these like, if Lurse is in an MI battalion, it's like you have a an infantry company inside of an MI battalion, which is right. a terrible mix. So I'm in this MI battalion dealing with these dudes that are like. Hey, you're a piece of crap because you didn't deploy. And I'm like, oh, really, first sergeant? Why didn't you deploy? And he's like, oh, I got sleep apnea. And I'm like, okay, like cool. 
So my job at there as a platoon sergeant was like to help the newcomers get ready for deployments. So like I'd send them through all their training, get them spun up on PT and then send them off. But I got into a kind of a shouting match with that first sergeant. And uh, I, I knew I had been working out with the sergeant major, the rear D sergeant major, and her husband was in first group. And like, I, I would always went and, and swam at the, uh, the gym and she was always in there with her husband working out. So I went over to her and was like, dude, can I, can I go somewhere else? So I, I walked over to first group and uh, I talked with, you know, the, the combo or the S6 NCOIC for group. And he was like, Hey, I got a job for you, but you're not going to like it. And I was like, anything is better than being the rear D platoon sergeant in this MI detachment or this MI battalion. So uh, I ended up getting a letter of acceptance from first group CSM, took it over to the MI showed it to my first sergeant. He was like, I'm not going to release you. And I was like, that's cute. It's not up to you. So took it over to the CSM for MI. And uh, she was like, yeah, you're, you're free to go, man. Like, go do great things. So I got over to, to group and it was like fresh start. So. Well, when you go over there, I, I think that you're still, from everything I read and stuff, you're still in kind of not the right mode. Um, it was, it was like an instant change over there. Like once I knew that I was, I was away from the MI guys, I was like, all right, whatever. Like those guys are in the past. I don't have to deal with those, these, or those guys, this is going to be much more like RTB and the infantry. And, uh, a lot of it was like, I was there with a lot of really good old school GBs, um, where it, it was kind of a culture shock going from Lurse as an E6 where like pretty much do whatever I want like tons of respect everybody respected me and then you go to group where it's like you know I'm like I'm an E6 and they're like oh that's cute so is everybody here yeah and I was like damn the fucking private again so but there it was like a whole new set of motivation like hey I'm not gonna let these dudes think I'm just some dumbass diseased kid hiding from deployments like start over start with you know start start with the basics start with PT and then uh, I was, we had a lot of jump masters in our shop. So like started running jumps and doing a lot of jump master duties. And then they were like, Hey, do you want to go shoot? I was like, yeah, I'd love to go shoot. Let's go shoot. So like we started shooting it once or twice a week. Um, and then just kind of built rapport from there with all the 18 echoes and a lot of the, the SF leadership. So. Well, and you say that was the perk of a job. Now there though, you actually were assigned to the skiff. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you can kind of explain if people don't know what a skiff or a vault is, if you can kind of explain like what goes on there and what you do. It is a room with no windows. It's like working inside of like a bank vault uh, or, or the white you house. Know, no but again, like most of my jobs in the army have been in skiffs because of clearances and just what I've done. So it's like concrete box, no windows, go to work, especially up here, go to work in the dark, leave work in it's dark, no sunlight for days. So, but at least I could go out and go shoot or go work out and do PT. So, and so you get to do that. You, you get to work with these guys um, but you're, you're finding out that, um, you still are not able to 
deploy, you're still not able to do um, kind of, I, I guess you would say like writing the final chapter. Um, you're still not yeah. able to do that. So as you're working this, you're, you're working other things. Um, you're, you're trying to get some other stuff done. How much kickback are you getting from that? Um, so like while, while I was at group, the guy who brought me there, super good dude. Like I work with him now as a civilian. Um, he was like, dude, I'm, I'm going to get you a deployment. Like I'm going to send you to the Philippines. Like you, I'm, I'm, even if it's the Philippines, you're going to deploy. He's like, that is my goal in life. So I'm trying to go to the Philippines. I'm like, I'm going to take over as like the G6 Sergeant Major or J Sodef G6 or whatever, J6. And then I come down on orders for SLC. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to deck these. I don't want to do this. I want to, I want to deploy, man. But then it was like the uh, SF command was like, the general was like, I'm not, I'm not signing any more waivers for deployments for for ncoes schools like these guys have to get these schools and it was at that point that i was just like well fuck i'm never gonna deploy i just i accept my fate and it is what it is like that dream is dashed so uh tried that i also so then the delta sergeant major for the signal detachment comes out is doing a recruiting brief and he was like didn't you apply like two years ago and i'm like yes He's like, why didn't we accept you? And I was like, I have diabetes. And he was like, oh, that's right. You're the diabetic kid. So he's like, do you want to, you want to try to interview again? And I'm like, sure. So he's like, dude, you can come do what you're doing for us. He's like, it's a non-deployable job, but like, we need you to do this. And I'm like, perfect. Like I'm all motivated. I'm like, fuck yeah, let's do this. Let's try this. So fill out, do everything. And then I like a day later, I get the email, like not best qualified. And I'm like, you fucking serious? Like this is like strike three for me for that. Uh, so at the same time, uh, my boss at USASOC calls me up and was like, Hey, JSOC is looking for an account manager. Do you want to go over there? And I'm like, if I fly out there, are they going to tell me no? And she was like, no, you've got the job. This is just a formality. So I go out, I fill out, I do their selection process, super fun, uh, mental head game. I go into the interview and the interview is supposed to be like a 10 minute, 15 minute, like layup. And then it ends up being like an hour and a half of me just getting crushed. And, uh, I ended up going back, tell them I'm not going to take the job. Their Sergeant major had to call and apologize to me for kind of showing his ass and against everybody's like judgment telling me like, don't take the job. I'm like, fuck it. I'm taking the job. And I ended up going to JSOC for a couple of years, which was both amazing. It was like a curse and a dream come true all in one. So, yeah. Fun, but fun but you, here's the thing, as I was reading through your stuff that I, I think about. You talk about the whole time what you want to do and stuff. You're, you're told repeatedly at different, you always figure out in a roundabout way to get in, but you're, you're told... Once again, we'll go back to, you know, you're not going to be able to do what you said you wanted to do. And yeah. so I I look at this in, in the stuff, the very, very long uh, letter that you wrote me. Um, and a, a, as I'm reading it, I, I just I don't 
I guess I don't get the point of where you know this is never going to happen. You you know it's not. You you know that if someone says, you know, because there's a lot of pie in the sky stuff where, hey, come try out. We can work this. We can work that. But you're told repeatedly. I never understood why you just kept go- It was almost like you wanted the abuse of it. Yeah, it, you know, like. It, it got to a point where, like, I knew I wasn't going to be able to go kick doors. I wasn't going to be able to go on target. I wasn't going to be able to do any of this stuff. But, like, I, I knew that there was dudes that didn't want to do what I did. And if I could do it and provide the best support and be the best enabler I could, that I was keeping someone else in the fight that wanted to be in the fight. So... Like that, that was a bit of motivation. Um, I really got upset, especially at first group where like, there was a big like divide between enablers and long tabbers. And obviously the enablers don't get a lot of respect from the long tabbers because we didn't, we didn't go through selection. Like at a group, you're a DA select, you don't, assess and go there that you really have no skin in the game you're just this is just a duty station and like i didn't like that i didn't i didn't like that us versus them mentality i didn't like that you know like fuck these guys they don't respect us why should we respect them so i i wanted to make sure that these dudes had the best support possible and i made their life as easy as possible so that they could go out and do great things and, and you also have to kind of understand, though, and I know you do, that the other people that are in those support, not everyone, I, by no means am I saying that, but a lot of those guys in those support positions feel exactly the opposite of the way you do. So there kind of has to be that divide because it's that natural thing that just sets in place. When you see uh, bad after bad after bad after bad, you get hardened to it. And, and I know that you have to agree with that, that, that there's always going to be that line because we've talked about it over. You have to prove yourself to them that you want to be there because a lot of the people that were sent there as support didn't want to be there. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was, you know, that's just, I don't know, like being looked at as a shit bag, at white at the white house like it it graded on me like it really wore me down mentally and then like at the end of the day i had to kind of own it but i also was like if these kind of shitheads think i'm a piece of shit like there doesn't matter to me because no matter how bad i am they're worse and like obviously looking back that's terrible to say but man those dudes were awful and then so like dudes that I did respect, like my worst nightmare is that like somebody I did respect was like, man, Overland's a, he's, he's a piece of shit. Like that would be crushing to me. So I was not going to let that happen. And then, uh, that's just, that's how it was. Like, I was like, I'm not going to let these guys fail because if they fail, I'm a failure. I want to talk about one more thing about you going back to first group and then we're going to get into the knives and stuff and after retirement. But I, I, I noticed at the end of kind of what you sent me that you said that you, you went back to first group and that you felt like a failure and 
with all you had done, the schools attempting to go everywhere you did, you're not a failure. By, by any stretch of the imagination, you're not a failure. But when you feel that and you reach the end of your career, how do you deal with something like that? Because that's crushing mentally to think, I just did all this, all this time. I did, you know, I, I did some things, but then you don't even really give yourself credit for those things. How is that not crushing mentally to you that you think I've done all this and it was for nothing? Yeah. It's like, like my first year at JSOC was rough because I was doing like, I was doing the account manager thing and I was working with civilians and like, it just, man, we are just not jiving. Like that was a toxic work environment. I take the blame a lot of it because like I was, I was an E7 by then I was, you know, in I was like 35, 36. It was like, I should have been able to adapt to my, my kind of environment. And I wasn't able to, the bright side to that is the guys I supported our customers, like they all love me. And I still talk to those dudes damn near every day. Um, and then I moved jobs there. And the second half, the second year that I was there was like, awesome. It was like dream come true. Like I got to do the coolest shit. Uh, loved my job. When the phone rang in the middle of the night, I was like, this is going to be cool. Like even my wife, you know, like, and you were in the army when you got a phone call in the middle of the night or, you know, it's like, Hey, somebody got a DUI, you got to come in. Everybody's like, Oh, this is stupid. But like at that place where the phone rang, something cool was going down. So, and it, it, it was awesome. Like I knew that I was being, I was a part of something better and greater and I was making an impact doing what I was doing. Uh, but yeah, like I left that place two years too soon. And like that, that hit hard because I was like, man, I can't even, you know, like that was, that was my own fault. And when I got back to first group, I was just like, I'm home. Like, but I'm done. Like mentally, I'm like, dude, I'm just, I'm like three years away from retirement, like throwing the towel in, like I'm done. Like I don't want to play anymore. So I did what I could like at group went back to just helping people and like externally everything was exactly the same. I was the same exact guy that left in 2014 and they all loved me, but inside I was just like counting the days down to when I could drop a retirement packet. So like it, it was so bad that I was in Korea before the Olympics and my buddy I was staying with was like, Hey, will you check out my class or my, my blues and make sure that they're good. I'm going to do my DA photo tomorrow. And I was like, oh, cool. He's like, are you going to compete for eight? I'm like, no, I've got zero chance. Like, I don't care. I'm retiring. So, like, we're, we're drinking beers or something. And I open up my, my promotion packet, and just click accept and send it up with, like, outdated everything as a joke. And he was like, man, you're stupid. So, a couple months later, I got picked up for freaking E8. So. So. Did did you go through with it with E8 or did you you still stepped away from it? So I got super motivated for eight. I was like, hell yeah, man. Like I could be a first sergeant. Like again, going back to RTB, like I can't do stuff, but like maybe I can motivate some of these youngsters 
to go do better things. Like there are so many kids in the army that don't know what Ranger Regiment is or don't know what SF is. They don't even have a clue about JSOC. Never heard of it. Don't know what the tiers are, any of this. And I'm like, if I could get one or two good kids into Ranger Regiment or get, you know, into one of the tiers, like that would be badass. So I got super motivated for that. And then uh, I, I had gone down and interviewed for a uh, E8 billet in one of the medical units here. And they were like, yes, we're sorry. You, you can't come here because you're non-deployable. I was like, are you serious? And the Sergeant Major was like, yeah, man, sorry. I was like, you know, I just left a tier and first group. And he's like, yep, sorry. So I called Branch and was like, dude, what do you got for me? He was like, you want to be an AIT first sergeant? And I was like, nope. Like, you'll have my retirement packet. Like, I'm done. So, yeah, it just, so I ended up declining eight and just in lieu of retirement, ended up getting out. So. Well, as you, you start to get out, uh, you still take on, when you get out, you went to work for a defense company that still pour, uh, supports um, special operations um, and with a guy that you were in first. But what I want to talk to you about is your knives because they're spectacular. <laughs> so you start to <clears throat> you start to get out. You make a knife for a friend, and I think they were PCS, and you didn't want to take part in the you know the little plaque award and stuff. So you thought I'll do this. You kind of go down a rabbit hole and start building them, and you you find out that you get a lot of uh, support from not only uh, your wife and other people, but a lot of people in general are really supporting you to go do this. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was crazy. Like, man, YouTube, like, you know, the YouTube rabbit hole, like you go on there to look up how to like disassemble a gun. And the next thing you know, you're like, Hey, did you know you can paint using this? <laughs> you know? <laughs> So I, I saw somebody making a knife on YouTube and was like, dude, I think I could do that. I was like, that'd be pretty cool. Like guys like knives. It would be something special for, for this guy. Like we were at, we were at white house comms together and like, he's probably what kept me from like being a workplace shooter. And, uh, so I make him this knife and he was like super happy. And of course me being me, I'm like, dude, I can make better. Like I could do something better. I could make it better. Like, I really, I hate that he has that knife right now, <laughs> to be honest. I'm like, God, that thing's so embarrassing. Uh, so then I just start going down that rabbit hole of like making knives, making different knives, figuring, figuring out different techniques, kind of refining that. And then uh, somebody was like, dude, you should, you should do this like professionally. And I'm like, no, you're dumb. So I'm sitting on the couch one night and I'm like, hey, babe, what do you think about like, me making knives as like a business and like what i was really trying to get her to say was like no that's dumb don't do it and she was like dude i think that'd be a great idea and i'm like huh so then i start asking everybody in the same manner like i'm expecting somebody to be like no don't do it and then no did so it kind of grew from there and now yeah now i make knives <laughs> so talk to me about the process that you go through because you you try a lot of different ones i i think the second one up on the right is uh that's like a special edition you said you've only done one or two of those 
you have yeah. your your mainstays that you do, but you do a special edition like once or twice a year. What's the process yeah. that you go through? Because I know that you started out using machines and buffers and all. Now you do everything by hand, right? Yeah. So like I've always done everything by hand. When I started making knives, I was using like hand files, like no machines at all. Um, so like, yeah, my very first knife, I think Brian has a couple of my very first knives. Where it was like, you could tell I used hand files and sandpaper. Um, so then when I made... When my wife and I made the decision that like, Hey, we're going to turn this into a business. Like, yeah, I invested a ton of money into equipment. Um, everything's still handmade by me. Like I don't have CNC, anything, uh, no water jet that like I'm out there with an angle grinder, cutting knives out and then using my big belt grinder to like profile everything out. I drill holes. I hand sand everything. I do my own coding, everything. Um, it's all by hand. I don't, you know, aside from a machine that it's a grinder, like I still do everything by hand. So, but yeah, I have a couple, couple mainstays that I used from like, you know, just being a jump master, like knowing what a good master knife is. And then I've hunted my entire life. So I know it's a good hunting knife. So I start out with those two and then I'll just get like a, I don't know. I, I'll get like inspiration from something somewhere and I'll end up grabbing the notebook and start sketching stuff out. And then I'll go cut a knife out. I'll do like two or three at a time now, just to kind of refine, try different things and then uh, go from there. Like Brian gets a lot of my first runs because like, what do you think about this? Uh, I've got buddies that are still, you know, that JSOC world that I'm like, I'll send a picture to and they'll be like, Oh, you should tweak this and that. And I'll do it. I'll send another picture of a different knife. And they'll be like, that's cool, man. I'll be like, here, I'm going to send it to you. Like, let me know what you think. And they'll get it in their hand and be like, hey, this is really good. But you should try this and that. So I'll start changing stuff. Um, yeah, that, that's pretty much it. Once in a while. If you need someone really? else, I'm available to, to check <laughs> knives for you. Um, I yeah. think the knife that I really, really like, uh, I think it's called the Butcher. Um, is it? Is that right? The oh. The one on the left there? Yeah. The orange one? Yeah, the barber. The barber. Yeah. I'm sorry. The barber. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I just like the look of it. Now, let's go through your mainstays and stuff. What what they're kind of good for. You see a couple of the pictures on here. What what kind of people, if they're looking for a knife or they're looking to buy a knife for somebody, can you go through yeah. kind of your mainstays and what they're used for? Okay. Yeah. So, like, my, my bread and butter really is hunting knives right now. Uh, like the two in the bottom right, there looks like one. Yeah, it's a Damascus hunting knife. And then uh, like that, that's kind of like just for hunting and maybe some light bushcraft stuff. It's a little bit short blade. It's kind of stout. It's good for breaking down joints and stuff. Um, and then the barber was honestly, it should have just been like a one-off knife, but I got such like a strong uh, response. I just kind of added them to the lineup. Um the tip of the spear is like the most, I, I don't know. Like, I'm not going to add that one in that. That was like a one, one and done. Um, I had fun making it. And that, that's what it comes down to is like, it, do I have fun making them? Uh, the one on top, I like the Lone Star. So I caught, you'll notice that I, know, I name a lot of my name, my knives after like dudes. I know. So like the Lone Star was working with a dude that's a, uh, 
he's a sheriff's deputy and SWAT guy in Utah. And uh, he was, he was like, Hey man, I'm looking for a knife, a fixed blade knife that I can conceal on my duty belt, but it has to be black and it has to be these dimensions. So I sketched something up. I was like, here, let, let me know this works. So he got, he got it. It was like, Holy crap. I love this. So he started showing all his guys. So they started ordering them and, you know, minor tweaks here and there from customers saying, Hey, like, would you try this? Would you do that? So that thing is like super stout. It's like a sharpened like iron bar. Yeah. I, I love them. So, uh, let's talk about where people can get them. Of course, RO knives.com. Uh, they can go there, uh, look through them. Uh, you can shop right from the site. You can look at all the different ways that they can be used, the different sheaths that come with them. Uh, and it even has like your special editions. I don't know if you can pick those up, but there's definitely pictures of them on there. Um, yeah, there, there is. So like the special editions, man, those are like so rare anymore because I'm just so busy knocking out stuff. Um, I've got a couple that I've been working on for a couple of years and I'll work on them here and there and then leave them alone and, go do customer knives, but no, most of my stuff's done off Instagram, honestly. And, and so, well, let's talk about that. RO underscore knives is on there. All your pictures are on there. You post constantly on there. Now, how many knives are you say from when you started to how many you're making a year now? Ooh, that, that kind of depends. Um, with the job I do now, like, I'm pretty busy with work. Like I'll be gone pretty much all next month, um, supporting SOCOM guys. Uh, it, it, it honestly, it just ends like my kids in baseball and I coach still coach football and baseball and stuff. So like that hunting season slows me down a little bit. Like the one, one good thing about owning my own business is like, I can work at my pace and I get a, I get to do what knives I want to do. Um, if guys are knives, like, I pretty much drop whatever I'm doing and work on those. So it's kind of hard for me to like balance working on working a regular nine to five job that usually takes me away from the family quite a bit, at least once a month plus coaching, plus trying to just, you know, spend family time. Um, but yeah, it, you know, it, it can take anywhere from a week to like six months for me to make a knife. So, so uh, Let's talk everywhere that people can find you. And then what's next for you? Uh, yeah. So my website there's, if you email me or hit me up on Instagram, I, if you want something, I can usually shoot you a, uh, like a order form for that. You can pick, I don't really do like full custom stuff, but like I will customize one of my core knives for you, how you want it. Um, that's, that's like the extent of my customization, but yeah, Instagram, RO underscore knives. That's the biggest one. Okay, guys, uh, go ahead. Uh, as I say from future and I don't, I don't know, just keep making knives. Yeah. I, I, uh, I see this, you know, taking over. You're one of the hottest ones on Instagram right now with, with everything that you're doing. There's so many different styles, so many different ways that you can get these knives. It's, it's unbelievable what you're doing. I told you, uh, Brian showed me the knives and I just fell in love with them. I think they're absolutely, uh, some of the best knives out there. So 
Guys, go check him out. It, it, Ryan, I'm so glad that you came on the show. Guys, you can find Ryan at roknives.com. You can find him on Instagram at ro underscore knives. Go to one of those two places. Check him out. Like he said, you can hit him up on Instagram. He'll customize one of his base blades to what you need it to or tell him what you're wanting. You can go to RO Knives and just pick up one of the regular knives that you uh, see on there that you like. The special editions, like he said, don't come out very often, but when they do, they are absolutely fantastic. So really, guys, go check this guy out. Uh, show him some love on there. Subscribe to him uh, and, and let him know what he can do to help you guys out. If you want more of me, you can catch me on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can catch me on Facebook at the DTD podcast. And you can find me on YouTube where all of these conversations are in video form on the DTD podcast. Remember, guys, the best stories are true, and you come here every week because I give them to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. That's Ryan. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We'll catch you guys on the next one. See you later.